Good evening, everyone. Our thanks, Keith. Really appreciate it. Um, our I really do. That wasn't sarcastic. If you thought that was sarcastic, you don't know me. Um, our reading tonight is from Acts chapter nine, verses one to nine. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are continuing this evening our year-long series that we have called Embody. For the first three weeks of this preaching calendar year, um, we did a series that we called the Makers Series. Uh, We talked about creativity and we did some interviews up here. Um, Now we're moving into a couple of weeks where we're going to talk about story. Uh, The three core values of our church here at Providencia are our city, your story, and God's grace. We're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about embodying your story. So this evening... I have titled this sermon, Resurrecting Your Story. Resurrecting Your Story. I was nervous and anxious for two straight days. I co-lead a story group on Tuesday nights. If you don't know what a story group is, you're going to get a little bit of a window into that through this sermon, but it'll just be my perspective and it'll just be inductive. So I'd encourage you to talk to Keith or talk to Sarah Claire if you would like to learn more about story groups and how we do them. So sometime on Sunday, last Sunday, my co-leaders and I realized that we didn't have anyone set to share a story on Tuesday night. Now when this happens, we don't really want to spring that on another member of the group. So one of the leaders has to volunteer when this kind of thing happens. I volunteered, reluctantly, I might add. I was preaching twice this weekend. I preached this morning at Memorial. I'm preaching this evening. And I didn't have a story already written. I didn't know what I would write about. And so on Monday night, I sat down with a mug of Harvest Blend herbal tea. Thank you, Trader Joe's. And I put on some McCoy Tyner and I started writing. Any of you who have written a story before to share will know that when you sit down to write it, 
often what comes out is not maybe what you originally thought would come out. I got into things that I was definitely uncomfortable sharing out loud. And so when I finished writing it, I was very nervous about sharing it. I thought about deleting the whole thing and pulling out altogether, just dumping it on Jordan. There was a glimpse of something in that story, a flash of darkness in me that I'm still wrestling with, and I didn't want to reveal that to the group. But I decided to try to trust the process, trust that God already knew, that my guys were willing to know, and that to remain unknown and hidden is to remain trapped, and it is to reject the gift of relationship and community that God's given me. Command P was my leap of faith. I printed the story and tried to prepare myself to share it. And in that nervousness, in that worry, in that darkness, Jesus met me just where I was. That's my first point tonight. Jesus meets us just where we are. And this truth is beautifully illustrated in Saul's story in Acts chapter 9. Saul is Paul, by the way, just in case that was unclear to anyone. He had two names. This is very common, especially for Jewish people at this time. Saul, has, Saul Paul has one Hebrew name, one Greek name. Anyway, Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus. Now, this is a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus on earth. Jesus has already ascended to heaven in Acts chapter 1. But he comes back to earth to appear to Saul. Saul actually sees Jesus. But if you feel like we've jumped into the middle of Saul's story, it's because we have. To answer the question, who is Saul, we have to back up a little bit. The first time Saul gets mentioned in this story is in chapter 7, verse 58. We read a story about the stoning of Stephen one of the early disciples of Jesus in the early church. And the crowd has dragged Stephen out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses of the stoning at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul's providing tacit approval for murder the first time we meet him. Then as we go on into chapter 8, we read explicitly that Saul approved of their killing Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Amazingly, this persecution only fuels the spread of the early church. We read about that in the rest of chapter 8. And then we come to the beginning of chapter 9, and verses 1 and 2 tell us that Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple. The Lord's disciples. Who is Saul? Saul is a religious extremist. It's a reminder to us that hate 
is nothing new. And the actions born out of hate are nothing new. We all have this kind of hate within us. It's not just the kind of hate that manifests manifests itself in explicit ways. Sometimes it boils under the surface of a fake smile, fake kindness. Sometimes it lies dormant for years in the form of a grudge we refuse to let go. Sometimes it ferments in our minds, waiting for the time to come to seek revenge. And it consumes us. It infects every part of us and every part of our behavior. Whether other people can see it or not, it consumes us. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Hate is too great a burden to bear. It consumes and paralyzes us. Hatred has two victims. Two victims. The one who is hated, the obvious victim, and the one who hates the less obvious victim. Hate is too great a burden to bear. But even deep hate, hatred even towards Jesus himself, that's where Saul is at in this story, does not stop Jesus from coming to meet us. See, if Jesus doesn't meet us just where we are, then we have no hope of a relationship With God, because we will simply never be good enough. If we wait until we're better, if we wait until we make a genuine effort to clean ourselves up of all the hate and ugliness in our lives so that God might accept us, we will never get there. We have to suffer the vulnerability of admitting to ourselves and to God that we have failed and that we need help. And Jesus will meet us just there. So I stepped into Jordan's house. That's where our story group meets. Still anxious about the paper in my hand. I had resolved myself to share it. I was resolved that the process of sharing and the people I was sharing with were good. And so I would try to trust the process. But I was still uncomfortable and afraid. My story spanned three generations of my family and even did a little bit of the fearful work of trying to look at future generations, trying to imagine future generations. It was a story about cycles, about repeated patterns, My biggest fear is that the cycle is already in motion. I've already become a part of it, and now it is inevitable. My biggest fear is that the cycle can't be broken. I read my story, and I bowed my head, not wanting to look anyone in the eye and not wanting to fall to pieces. As is our practice, there was silence for a little while after I finished sharing. I knew the silence was coming, but it still felt like forever. And I was still afraid of who might respond first and what they might say or think about me. Then one by one, 
the guys responded to my story with compassion and understanding. One by one, they identified the cycle I was afraid of and they helped me articulate that fear. And one by one, they showed me through their compassion that the act of sharing, of uncovering that piece of my story could be part of breaking the cycle. My deepest fear is still that the cycle is already in motion and can't be broken. But my deepest belief is that Jesus has met me in that fear and said to me, arise. Cycle breaking requires resurrection. In verse 6 of Acts 9, Jesus says to Saul, arise and go into the city, and it will be told to you what you should do. The word at the beginning of this verse is not usually translated arise. Instead, it's get up or stand up, indicating the physical action, but it can just as easily and profoundly be translated arise or rise up. I'm going to do my very best not to descend into Hamilton lyrics. (laughs) But this is the word used throughout the New Testament to talk about rising up from being dead. It's the resurrection word. So we see it in all the resurrection accounts in the Gospels. We see it in the story of the paralyzed man whom Jesus heals both spiritually and physically. Jesus says, arise, take up your mat, and walk. It's used of Jairus' daughter who is thought to be dead before Jesus can even visit the house to heal her. Jesus enters the house anyway, meets her where she is, takes her by the hand, and says, little girl. I say to you, arise. It is used of Jesus right here in the book of Acts that God raised him up, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Esau Macaulay in his book, Reading While Black, says that it's the cross and the resurrection that can break the cycles of anger and violence in our lives and in our world. He says, Without the resurrection, the forgiveness embedded in the cross is a wistful dream of a pious fool. But I am convinced, says Macaulay, that the Messiah has defeated death. I can forgive my enemies because I believe the resurrection happened. I'm convinced the God who had the power to judge me did not. Instead, he invited me into communion with his son. And through that union with the Messiah, I discover the resources to love that I did not possess before. When anger is victorious in my own heart, it never defeats God. It seems clear to me that the New Testament authors, the early Christians, took this word, this resurrection word, that could mean something mundane and simple and imbued it with profound theological meaning. Drawing together the themes of physical resurrection and spiritual resurrection into one beautiful utterance, arise. We have the opportunity to be resurrected just as Jesus was. 
We die to all the old things, to our old life, to our old addictions to power and control, our addictions to escape, to our false selves. And Jesus says to us, arise, just as he said to Saul on the road to Damascus. So what comes next? You've been freed. Do you know how hard it is to lead? Who's going to be the first to laugh? Thank you. Okay. I slipped into Hamilton lyrics again. Jesus meets us just where we are. He calls us to be resurrected. And then what? He doesn't leave us where we are. He meets us where we are. He calls us to be resurrected. And then he doesn't leave us where we are. In his commentary on our passage in Acts 9, Willie Jennings says this of Saul's former life. Violence, in order to be smooth, elegant, and seemingly natural, needs people who are closed circles. The most dangerous people are closed circles. But when we allow ourselves to be seen by others, when we share our stories with people we trust, as Sarah Claire mentioned in our confession, we are becoming open circles. The resurrecting power of God breaks open that circle, that cycle, and the light of dawn penetrates for the first time. When the circle gets broken, the line continues on though. It diverges in another direction, and it's hard to know what that new direction is or where it's going. That's one of the feelings I had over the days between sharing my story and tonight. It was a feeling of uncertainty, a feeling of newness and hope, but uncertainty about the next step. It felt a little bit like a cycle had been broken a little bit. But as my line went off in a different direction, I imagined other cycles that it might get caught in. It felt a little like my eyes had been opened, but I couldn't see. Saul's eyes were opened, but he saw nothing. Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus. He brings him to new life, and commands him to rise up. And if the eternal life Saul will now enjoy was the only purpose of Jesus' resurrection call, then he would have taken Saul right then and there. There would have been no reason for Saul to remain on earth or get any more instructions or have to care about where his line is now going. But that isn't the way it goes. When Jesus brings about new life, it's with a purpose. He doesn't intend to leave Saul standing there blind on the road to Damascus. He's got big plans for Saul, but he doesn't hit Saul with those big plans right away. God doesn't give the great big picture of what he wants for our lives all at once. I think if he did, we'd probably be more scared than anything else. God does give some of the big picture to Ananias, another character in this story. 
If we read on, we see that the Lord calls on Ananias to go and see Saul and to be the instrument through whom Saul will receive his sight back. God says to Ananias, this man Saul is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. If God gives this picture to Saul, he's probably going to be terrified out of his mind. I would be. Saul, I've got great plans for you. Things you wouldn't even believe that you will do in my name. Now, you're going to be thrown in prison a few times. You're going to be stoned. You're going to be shipwrecked. You're going to, run out, you're going to be run out of town basically everywhere you go. Are you all set, Saul? Here we go. Terrifying. No, Saul gets little breadcrumbs. And most of the time, that's all we get too. Arise and go into the city and it will be told to you what you should do. Jesus doesn't leave us where we are. He doesn't leave us in that old life. He ushers us into a new life and he gives us himself as an example of how to follow it. That's a pretty big breadcrumb. Today is Mental Health Sunday. Yesterday was World Mental Health Day. So a lot of churches are connecting the Sunday closest to World Mental Health Day and talking about mental health. I appreciate Sarah Claire's confession from, early, er, from earlier. Today's Mental Health Sunday. Well, at Providencia, every Sunday is Mental Health Sunday. That's because we believe that every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And we believe that mental health is connected to emotional health, is connected to physical health, is connected to spiritual health. So if we're going to embody our story, we're embodying something Jesus has already resurrected. Let's pray.